0: This episode will count for CME credit with the American College of Physicians. Click on the link in the show notes, follow the URL, answer three questions, and get CME credit. And with that, let's get on to the episode.
1: Do you know any other drug? Any other drug on the market? I mean, if you tried to put steroids on the market right now, if you tried to get steroids past the FDA, there's no way, right? There's way too many side effects. to to have steroids be FDA approved for anything. And yet they're FDA approved for like every autoimmune condition. They're FDA approved for COPD. You know, there's so many different things that they're
0: FDA approved for just because they're grandfathered in. That's Dr. Beth Wallace, a rheumatologist at the University of Michigan. And today we are talking all things corticosteroids, aka steroids.
2: Glucocorticoids are a double-edged sword, or I don't know if you could make it a triple-edged. There's a lot of benefits, but also really salient chronic and, and acute issues with steroids.
0: And that was Dr. Michael Weintraub, an endocrinologist at NYU. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and welcome to the Core I Am Thigh Pearls podcast, bringing you high yield, evidence based pearls. And this episode is on steroids. Really wouldn't have been possible without Dr. Casey Kim.
3: You flatter me, Shreya. But hi all, I'm Casey. I'm a second year internal medicine resident at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. I was really excited to dig into this topic because I felt like I was just using steroids every day, but not really understanding them. I had so many questions about when to start, what to start, when to stop, how to do so. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Most of the times it felt like I was just starting and stopping steroids at random.
0: Yeah, same. We've all been there.
3: So, you know, with that, let's get started on our five questions on steroids. Make sure to test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions.
0: And remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
3: Pearl One, types of corticosteroids.
0: What are three guiding principles that can help us choose between the different types of steroids?
3: Pearl 2, side effects of steroids.
0: What have studies shown in terms of the dose and duration for worrisome complications? Pearl 3, prophylaxis. What types of prophylaxis should be started in patients on steroids and when?
3: Pearl 4, steroid weaning.
0: In which patients should we wean steroids versus stop abruptly, and how should we do so?
3: Pearl 5, steroid weaning limitations.
0: What factors limit steroid weaning?
3: There are so many different corticosteroid formulations. And like I was just mentioning, how should we think about which one to start and why?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question to start off with because I think a lot of us just pick up kind of patterns along the way. Oh, this is the one that we use for COPD. Oh yeah, this is the one we use for stress steroids. And now with COVID, oh yeah, this is the one I get for COVID.
3: Yeah, I definitely have those associations in my mind as well too. And I wanted to see if we could get a deeper understanding of why we choose one versus the other, especially for the five big ones that I see the most frequently, hydrocortisone, fludrocortisone, methylprednisolone, prednisone, and dexamethasone. So when you look at steroids, they don't come in the same shapes and sizes. They're
4: steroids, yes, but I don't say they're siblings, they're cousins of the same family because they really have different effects. So really picking and matching your steroid to what effect you want to get to in the end is really critical. And understanding where your steroid falls on that spectrum really helps you make that
0: decision. That's Dr. Sharif, an endocrinologist at Duke, one of our experts. And yes, brace yourself. There's four different specialties that we interviewed because steroids are used by so many different people. So when we sat down with our experts, we came away with three general guiding principles.
3: Speaking of which, our first two principles have to do with the amount of glucocorticoid activity and the amount of mineral corticoid activity. Remember that our adrenos produce endogenous steroids that have a range of glucocorticoid and mineral corticoid activity.
0: Casey, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, what exactly do we mean by that first principle, glucocorticoid activity?
3: So glucocorticoids have systemic effects in our metabolism and do a lot of other things, but for our purposes, we'll simplify the glucocorticoid activity as to how much anti-inflammatory activity a steroid has.
0: Great. And then with the second principle in determining which steroid to choose, what do we exactly mean by mineralocorticoid activity?
3: So if we simplify mineralocorticoid activity, basically what we're talking about is that the more mineralocorticoid activity a steroid has, there is more salt and water retention by the kidneys. So this often leads to higher blood pressure and fluid
0: accumulation. Great. And then as a rule of thumb, we can think of glucocorticoid activity and mineralocorticoid activity as opposite spectrum. So the more glucocorticoid activity a steroid has, generally the less mineralocorticoid activity that steroid has. And then on the flip side, the more mineralocorticoid activity a steroid has, relatively, they'll have less anti-inflammatory or glucocorticoid activity. So if you look at it as a spectrum
4: and you look at it moving from, say, maximum glucocorticoid effect to, say, maximum mineralocorticoid effect, you start seeing that dexamethasone is really heavy on that glucocorticoid spectrum, but you don't have a lot of mineralocorticoid activity. So if you want to get most bang for your buck with kind of the fire extinguisher effect of steroids you really want to go with the bazooka steroid which is kind of the dexamethasone, right? And somewhere in between is your prednisone, your methylprednisolone. Those come somewhere right in between where they have more glucocorticoid but some mineralocorticoid activity. And then you move forward with that spectrum and you're going further down and then you see that you're hitting more of the mineralocorticoid activity and then you hit your pur- pure mineralocorticoid which is fludrocortisone. And hydrocortisone is somewhere in between your prednisone and fludrocortisone.
3: You know, Shreya, I actually made a mnemonic to help us remember the spectrum and strength of steroids for each of our three principles.
0: (laughs) Okay. I love me some mnemonics. I would love something to help me remember the order versus kind of just going off of gestalt of how strong I think something is.
3: Okay. So the mnemonic I came up with was something that I strive towards being. It's a high-powered MD. So... Uh, yeah. So each letter stands for a different corticosteroid, starting with hydrocortisone, going to prednisone, mm. then methylprednisolone, and then dexamethasone. I did leave foodocortisone out, but that's because it doesn't really fit neatly into the spectrum.
0: Okay. Nice. Okay. I th- Hopefully we'll have all- this all in an infographic as a reference. So, okay. If we take that high-powered MD mnemonic, if we think about the glucocorticoid or anti-inflammatory effect, it increases as we go along the spectrum. So if we start with hydrocortisone, that H, it has the least amount of glucocorticoid activity. And then dexamethasone on the other end has the most amount of glucocorticoid anti inflammatory activity.
3: So, this makes a lot of sense when we think about clinical situations in which we reach for dexamethasone. So, for emergencies like spinal cord compression or brain metastases, you really want the strongest glucocorticoid and anti inflammatory effect possible. So, there you go, Dex.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like Dr. Sharif was saying, you know, Dex is that bazooka gun, anti inflammatory fire extinguisher. And probably also helps explain why we reach for DEX in acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, in the ICU, right? This is largely an inflammatory lung injury.
1: Dexamethasone is the drug of choice for lung inflammation, so ARDS, um, especially in uh, pneumonia or sepsis. Uh, and it's the DEXA ARDS trial, and then COVID with pulmonary involvement, the recovery trial. Both of those use dexamethasone.
0: And in addition to that anti inflammatory bit, the bonus is that dexamethasone essentially has. No mineralocorticoid activity, so it's good for those patients who are sensitive to sodium retention, fluid balance. And now that I think about it, I guess a similar thinking applies to why in COPD or in asthma we often reach for methylpred or prednisone on the floors or outpatient.
3: Right, because oftentimes these patients might have concurrent heart failure, and you know we don't want to give them another reason to be short of breath with fluid retention from their steroids.
0: Exactly, exactly. So prednisone and methylprednisolone are thought to have more of that glucocorticoid anti-inflammatory activity and less of that mineralocorticoid activity.
3: Speaking of mineralocorticoid activity, just as a quick recap of our high-powered MD mnemonic, mineralocorticoid activity decreases along the spectrum. So the H in high-powered MD is hydrocortisone, which has strong mineralocorticoid activity, with prednisone and methylprednisolone in the middle And dexamethasone, are champion glucocorticoid, having
0: no mineralocorticoid activity. (laughs) Womp womp, but also good in some cases. So if we think of when we reach for hydrocortisone, which has relatively more mineralocorticoid activity, it's going to be in septic shock or stress dose steroids, say in someone with adrenal insufficiency. But yeah, I can see now because it has relatively higher mineralocorticoid activity, it's going to keep that blood pressure up in the patients with septic shock or adrenal insufficiency. But now that I'm thinking about this more, sometimes I have seen people reach for fludrocortisone in these cases too, but you mentioned fludrocortisone is the exception to high-powered MD. So how should we think about fludrocortisone?
3: Yep, Flutricortisone is that one cousin that doesn't quite follow the family rule of
0: thumb. I always have that one.
3: I know, there's always one, right? <laughs> the thing to remember is that it has the strongest mineral corticoid activity, but it also has some mild glucocorticoid activity as well too. And by strongest mineral corticoid activity, I mean, it's just off the charts compared
0: to the other steroids in terms of relative strength of mineral corticoid activity. If it is off the charts, then why don't we reach for fludrocortisone in septic shock? It has the most mineral corticoid activity. Why are we reaching for hydrocortisone?
3: So the thought is that hydrocortisone has sufficient mineral corticoid activity, so it does the job, so to say but it's a hot topic in an active area of research with trials comparing hydrocortisone versus flutocortisone or hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone in um, you know, the ICU setting around
0: septic shock. Nice. So we will have front row seats as that plot thickens. Okay. This has been really great, Casey. I'm like smiling here, just cementing each of these steroids and the amount of glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid activity hasn't really helps build that strong reasoning for why we might be using a steroid in one case versus the other.
3: Yep, but let's take it up a notch with our last principle,
0: of steroids, half-life, and potency. Okay, yeah. So thankfully, half-life and potency, for the most part, does track together. And if we go back to that high-powered MD spectrum, on the left, hydrocortisone has the shortest half-life Lowest potency. And if we move up on the other spectrum, dexamethasone has the longest half life and highest potency.
3: When I first heard this principle, I got really curious you know, if how does potency or half life matter? Can't you just use equivalent doses among the different types of steroids?
2: So, if someone's on dexamethasone with a really high biological half life of 36 to 54 hours. That's basically suppressing our our own hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis 24-7 versus something like hydrocortisone where our HPA axis might have time to, to kind of kick in and produce its own uh, endogenous cortisol or, and not not kind of atrophy over time.
3: Oh, so long-acting steroids like DEX suppress the HPA axis more. So that's why we actually reach for short-acting steroids like hydrocortisone in adrenal deficiency because that shorter half-life actually mimics the natural cortisol production multiple times a day.
1: For one, it's a direct physiologic analog. Your body makes hydrocortisone and hydrocortisone is available as a drug. So it's exactly what your body makes. It's also short acting. So you can give it two or three times a day to mimic the physiologic secretion. Or if someone needs stress dose steroids, uh, for instance, someone with adrenal insufficiency who is sick or having surgery, um, you can dose uh, hydrocortisone even more often than that.
0: And we'll talk a lot more about adrenal insufficiency in Perl 5. There's actually also a whole Core IM episode on it too. But in general, we should pick steroids with the lowest potency and half-life that'll work for our chosen indication to minimize the suppression of the HPA access and minimize the risk of adrenal insufficiency.
3: Speaking of potency, Jeff Fish, an ICU pharmacist at the University of Wisconsin Health Systems, gave us his rule of thumb for converting doses between the steroids.
5: We always talk about like the conversion factor um, between them, where dexamethasone, one milligram, is equal to four milligrams of methylpred, which five milligrams of prednisone is equal to 20 of hydrocort. So if you do have to convert back and forth between them to use that conversion.
3: To make this easier, I like to think of steroids in terms of prednisone equivalent, so I'm either multiplying or dividing by five. So if I have dexamethasone, I'll multiply
0: by five, or if hydrocortisone, I'll divide by five to get a ballpark prednisone equivalent dose. Ah, Casey, you're so helpful with these rule of thumbs and these mnemonics. Love it.
3: Trey, I try. I mean, you just got to simplify, right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know. It said like a true educator that likes to decrease cognitive load. All right. So let me try to take a stab at some of the takeaways. So I think big picture, we are learning that not all steroids have the same amount of anti-inflammatory and mineralocorticoid effects. And if you think of steroids on a spectrum, the strongest glucocorticoid such as dexamethasone has the lowest mineralocorticoid activity and vice versa with hydrocortisone having relatively more mineralocorticoid activity and relatively less anti-inflammatory Activity. With the exception of fludrocortisone, it's that cousin that doesn't really fit as well, unfortunately. But fludrocortisone blows the other steroids out of the water with how much relative mineralocorticoid activity it has.
3: And then the last factor is the half life and potency, with DEX having the longest half life and potency, and then hydrocortisone on the other end having a relatively shorter half life and potency. So now that we know what type of steroid to start a patient on, let's dive a little bit
0: more into side effects. Honestly, what side effects don't steroids cause? You list them, steroids probably cause them.
2: So weight gain, bone demineralization, so osteoporosis is a a real thing, real problem. Um, Blood sugars, you know, someone who has well-controlled type 2 diabetes placed on prednisone 20 milligrams twice daily (laughs) of prednisone, their blood sugar is going to go through the roof increase infection. Dyslipidemia are all real issues that chronically over time do increase our risk for heart attacks, strokes, uh, metabolic disease.
1: I mean, even just avian alone, right? If you're like up to 30% of people who take this drug can have just rotting of their hip. It can just disintegrate. Like that's unacceptable. (laughs) That's really unacceptable. But if we didn't do it. If we didn't pulse people who are, you know, in the ICU intubated with pulmonary renal syndrome, they would die. So it's it's a trade-off.
0: Wow. 30% AVN avascular necrosis? That is so high.
3: I know, I know. I thought it was really high too. So I looked it up and the range is variable, but it's anywhere from four to forty percent reported in studies of glucocorticoid associated vascular necrosis in various conditions.
0: Yeah, and that brings up one question that comes to mind is, you know, what's the rate and frequency with which some of these side effects occur? You know, is there a certain dose or duration of steroids that really puts you at risk? And if so, maybe that can also help us kind of counsel our patients too when it comes to steroid bursts and and risks with that too.
3: Yeah, so it looks like most cases of AVN started around 33 months, so over a year, but there have been several cases of AVN that were noted after just three months. And the earliest recognition was only after maybe like a little more than a month of 60 milligrams per day of oral methylprednisolone or a cumulative dose of about 570 milligrams of st-
0: oh, methylpred. Wow. And I guess for reference, a single dose pack of methylprednisolone with those steroid bursts is typically 24 milligrams a day and contains about 84 milligrams total over the course of six days.
3: So, you know, on its own, it's not really enough to cause AVN, but it does make me wonder at how much these dose packs could add up for patients, especially those who need repeat steroid courses over a short period
0: of time. Something I always wonder about with short steroid courses is what's the risk of infection, right? You know, sometimes I have these patients who come in with infections after short courses of steroids for COPD and asthma. I've never really been sure if I should think of these patients as immunocompromised or not.
1: Yeah, so this is another question where the the field is rapidly changing. So if you look back five or 10 years, most people would have said that long-term use of five milligrams or less, or even really seven and a half milligrams or less, wasn't really associated with the clinically significant uh, risk of infection, and most people also would have said that bursts, so the you know short tapering courses we use for things like gout or RA flares or COPD flares or asthma, were also pretty low risk. But there's been several recent large um, retrospective cohort studies done using claims data that suggest this isn't true. So the the most recent one was Songchao Yao um, that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2020. And this was a retrospective cohort study looking at births of less than 14 days using Taiwanese claims data. And this their, their claims database captures basically the entire population of Taiwan, you know, all of their claims, all of their visits, all of their prescriptions, et cetera. And they found that over a two year period, about a quarter of the population got steroids. And these were mostly healthy young people. And they were mostly getting them for things like URIs, laryngitis, bronchitis. So the equivalent of you know dose packs that would get prescribed at urgent care here in the US. And they found significantly increased rates of three pretty serious outcomes, GI bleeds, sepsis, and heart failure. And these absolute risk differences were very small. They were on the order of uh, 0.1 to 10 um, per 1,000 person years. But 40,000 GI bleeds, 400 cases of sepsis, and 4,000 cases of heart failure were directly attributable to these bursts over this two-year period.
0: Wow. I don't really think about the impact on individual patients who are on short steroid courses, but I was really surprised on a population level. It looks like even short bursts of steroids can increase your risk of pretty significant side effects.
3: And Shreya, what I found was really interesting too was that this played out even for low doses of steroids as well too. I remember Dr. Wallace told us about another study that showed higher rates of infections looking at claims data of patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And some of these patients were only on five milligrams of prednisone or less. And what I really loved was just hearing how Dr. Wallace conceptualizes the infection risk on steroids. So taking
1: three or four milligrams of prednisone is comparable to taking a TNF inhibitor in terms of the increase in infectious risk. So that's not that's not nothing. It's not huge, but it's not nothing. So the best answer, based on the data we have right now um, to this question, is any dose for any duration is probably somewhat immunosuppressive. But the risk is dose-dependent, just like all the other risks of steroids. So the lower, the better. But any there's no safe dose, essentially, from an infection standpoint.
3: And I think she also just had the best summary when it came to risk while on steroids as well too. The kind
1: of way that I recommend looking at steroids is looking at them from a stewardship perspective. So sort of like we look at opiates or antibiotics. Um, we we previously, and even when I trained, right? When I trained in residency, we prescribed short courses of steroids for lots of things. Oh, sinusitis, we'll give you some steroids. It'll make you feel better. You know, low back pain, we'll give you some steroids. Because we thought they were safe. We thought if it's a young, healthy person, we're giving them you know, seven days, 10 days of steroids, this isn't going to cause any problems. But it's clear now that that's not true. It, it's The risks are small, but they're real. And these are avoidable events. So just as you wouldn't prescribe antibiotics for a viral infection, don't prescribe steroids when there's not a clear indication for their use. Hashtag steroid stewardship is a hashtag I have tried to insert into Twitter, into my Twitterverse. Um and that I hope we can
0: yeah. I like the challenge. We can get that trending. Uh, Do it. Cassie's a a tutorialist, uh, a budding tutorialist. And so um we'll see what we can do when we publish this episode. Wow.
3: So I knew that steroids caused a lot of different side effects, but for the patients that do have to be on steroids, we can mitigate some of these bad side effects with a little bit of prophylaxis, right?
0: Yeah. You know, we've got PJP prophylaxis, GI ulcer prophylaxis, osteoporosis prophylaxis, so much and also not enough probably.
3: (laughs) Yeah, all the prophylaxis. But let's start with prophylaxis for PJP, aka pneumocystis gyrovesi pneumonia.
0: Oh, uh, hats off. That was probably a mouthful. So yeah, when do we start trimethoprim sulfamethoxide or the second line primaquine plus clinda or atovaquone uh, to prevent that PJP?
3: That was also a mouthful, but the general <laughs> thought is to start PJP prophylaxis when a patient is on 20 milligrams of prednisone-equivalent corticosteroids for greater than one month, which is what our experts endorsed as well as guidelines from the National Comprehensive Cancer Network and American Thoracic Society.
0: Okay, so one month or more of 20 milligrams of prednisone-equivalent, great. One thing that surprised me was just thinking about the indication of that steroid in the first place and how that might play into how we think about risk for PJP and starting prophylaxis.
1: Within rheumatology, you know, speaking again from sort of anecdotal clinical experience, um, the threshold also depends on the indication. So for instance, patients with anchovasculitis just get PJP more often and are prophylaxed at much lower doses than people with lupus. People with lupus, they can be on you know, 60, 50, 40 milligrams of prednisone for months and they don't get PJP. And I had a patient with encovasculitis who, um, she was on tovaquone and her atovaquone prior off expired and she couldn't get it renewed. But there was a, a, you know, period of a week or two where she didn't have any prophylaxis and she got PJP in, in that little tiny period of time. So they're just more prone to it. So it sort of depends on, you know, what they're on steroids for.
3: Wow. It's humbling that just one week of prior-off nonsense made such a difference.
0: Yeah.
3: And also just so interesting to think about how these different steroid and disease state interactions might change how you think about various risks.
0: Yeah, definitely a lot of nuance, right? And I think maybe one of the reasons why having guidelines on steroid prophylaxis can be a bit challenging, right? There's just a variety of different conditions that patients are on for steroids and, you know, a lot of different side effects too.
3: Speaking of those different other side effects, one of the other ones I've seen is steroid-induced GI side effects or ulcer side effects. Yeah, You know, I've definitely heard of starting a PPI for patients on steroids, but I feel like I see it pretty variably in practice.
0: Yeah, there's definitely some controversy over whether or not steroids in and of themselves are associated with ulcers and GI bleeding. But at least from studies, we've seen that the risk of ulcers increases fourfold whenever a patient is on steroids plus an NSAID. So some effects like steroids plus a blood thinner can really synergize based on a patient.
1: From a GI standpoint, I do use guidelines for this. So anyone who is taking an NSAID plus prednisone, I prophylax. Anyone with an ulcer history or who has GI side effects from steroids. So if they get on steroids and they say, oh, I'm having a lot of GERD. I think it's from the steroids. I prophylax that person. Anyone on blood thinners uh, of any kind. So doax, warfarin, any of that. And then age sort of factors in. So the, there's no specific cutoff, but the older someone is, the more I sort of think about it.
3: So to recap, anyone on steroids who's also on an NSAID or a blood thinner or who has like a history of ulcers and GI side effects should be on GI prophylaxis if they're on steroids, whether that be a PPI or an H2 blocker.
0: Yeah. And then last but not least, let's talk about calcium and vitamin D. I feel like all patients on chronic steroids are on some calcium or vitamin D. Yeah.
3: And just to be explicit, the hope with Calcium and vitamin D is to prevent glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis.
0: And if we look at the pathophys, steroids induce a negative calcium balance. Steroids both decrease intestinal absorption of calcium and increase excretion of calcium in the urine. So basically, steroids decrease how much calcium is coming in and increase how much calcium is going out.
3: And that's why steroid-induced osteoporosis is very common. The risk of fractures increases even just on 2.5 to 7.0 milligrams
0: of prednisone daily. And that's just the first one to three months. Yeah. And that's why for any patient who's on steroids for any dose greater than three months, the American College of Rheumatology recommends getting enough calcium and vitamin D, whether it be through diet or supplements. But Casey, I'm curious, is that calcium and vitamin D actually clinically helpful?
3: Uh, so it's kind of mixed. We do see improved bone density, but no difference in incidence of non-traumatic fractures.
0: Uh, I was uh, thinking that would be the case. Okay. So what about bisphosphonates? though? Do they help more in steroid-induced osteoporosis?
3: Yeah. So bisphosphonates have actually been shown to have a little bit more of an effect. They've helped with lumbar spine and femoral neck bone mineral density. And as a bonus, have also been shown to
0: reduce risk of new vertebral fractures as well. Okay, that's good to know. So then maybe should all patients who are on steroids just take a bisphosphonate to reduce their fracture risk? The the off-the-bat
3: people who should be on bisphosphonates are your 40-year-olds or older who are on high-dose glucocorticoids, which is initial dose prednisone greater than 30 milligrams per day or cumulative
0: dose greater than 5 grams in one year. And then I'm guessing everyone else, we should use a FRAC score, aka the fracture risk assessment tool to help us stratify the probability of a fracture over the next 10 years.
3: Right. So anyone on prednisone greater than 2.5 milligrams per day for greater than three months should also get a FRAC score to see their risk.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So maybe if I can summarize this pearl and maybe I'll try to reinforce the teaching points from a timeline or duration of steroids angle. If we think on day one, if my patient's on a steroid and if they're on an NSAID, a blood thinner, or have a history of ulcers or GI symptoms, then you can go ahead and get started on GI prophylaxis. At the one-month mark of being on a steroids, we could consider starting PJP prophylaxis if they're on a prednisone equivalent of 20 milligrams or more. And then at the three-month mark, the recommendation is all patients should be on vitamin D, calcium, and should have a FRAX score done to see if bisphosphonates may be indicated. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie-smart to protein-plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's <laughs> cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50.
3: Okay, so while we do love preventing some of those side effects of prophylaxis, what about just stopping the steroids altogether?
0: Let's do it, Casey. Stop the steroids and start the wean. <laughs> Except you just
3: brought up my one weakness, steroid tapers. Oh yes, yes, yes. Bless. <laughs> aren't they? Aren't they tough ones? Yeah but really it felt like a toss-up all the time whether or not I should stop steroids immediately or weed them. And then even then, I was never sure how long to make the taper either. Sounds like a million-dollar
0: question.
4: Everyone has a different way of doing this. Um, I always say you ask five different endocrinologists, you're going to get 10 different answers on how they want to do steroid tapers. It really comes down to the
3: art of medicine. There's no perfect way of doing this. There's no design set way of doing this. When we did sit down and talk to our experts and reviewers who are pharmacists, endocrinologists, rheumatologists, and pulmonologists, one of the biggest factors in determining whether or not a steroid should be tapered came down to duration of steroid use.
5: I always have used, like, if they're on it for seven days or less, that you can just stop it cold. If they're on it for more than 14, then you should wean it. If they're on from seven to 14, then it kind of depends on the dose and what you're using it for. Most trials just stop it after the treatment course. And even the one that I was surprised with is the dexa trial, where they gave that 20 milligrams of dexamethasone for five days, and then the 10 milligrams for five days, they just stopped it. after, So 10 days, of very high dose dexamethasone, they just stopped it.
3: So to give some context, if you use my rule of thumb of multiplying by five, 20 milligrams of dexamethasone is roughly 100 milligrams of prednisone, And 10 milligrams of dexamethasone daily
0: is roughly 50 milligrams of prednisone, which is a whopping dose. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes you don't realize that when you're just ordering it. Yeah. So I appreciate that context. I think the other thing that surprised me, Casey, was just hearing the impact of multiple bursts of steroids over time.
2: So, you know, we have all had that patient who has, you know, been treated with. Five courses of prednisone or, or Medrol dose packs for their COPD exacerbations, or or they're getting uh, steroids for chemo as an antiemetic. There have been a number of studies that are, that have looked at these populations of people against small n. But you know, if we have say, um, there was one study of about three hundred patients who were COPD patients who were, were given prednisolone for short courses, like a couple weeks, but they were given for frequent courses, about 10% developed adrenal insufficiency. And there's kind of other analogous cases of studies of patients who were being given dexamethasone, um, high-dose dexamethasone just for three-day courses, but they were on it for you know, multiple courses to be given with their uh, chemotherapy. 15% of those patients uh, developed adrenal insufficiency.
3: Wow. So what I'm taking away from that is that these patients that are on multiple courses of steroids might actually benefit from a steroid taper because they're at higher risk of adrenal insufficiency, which is not something that
0: I typically think about. Yeah. I'm just thinking right now about all the people that I see so often come in and out of the hospital on steroid bursts. And gosh, I've probably missed some cases of adrenal insufficiency and probably should have tapered them. So I guess if we sit a little bit more with the idea of stereo tapers, you know, what are some best practices? How should we do this? I know it's an art, but are there any good rules of them?
3: So the principle that came up is that you can go fast until you reach a certain threshold and then you really want to slow down.
2: On high doses, it's okay to taper rapidly. So what's rapidly? So every week tapering by five or 10 milligrams. And then once you get down to maybe about 20 milligrams, that's when you have to slow down a little bit because that's when those withdrawal symptoms can be exacerbated. And then maybe decreasing by one or 2.5 milligrams per week.
0: Okay. So we can do a rapid taper until maybe 20 milligram prednisone equivalent or so. And hold on to the idea of steroid withdrawal symptoms because we'll get more into that in Pearl 5.
3: Yeah, and it's a good one because I had never heard of it before this episode. Another common principle that was brought up by both our expert endocrinologists was transitioning to shorter acting steroids during the wean.
4: Anecdotally, what has worked for me and physiologically, what makes most sense is to get patients to hydrocortisone and then taper them off. This seems to work more seamlessly. Um, And physiologically, it makes more sense because prednisone is a longer acting steroid and has more chances of suppressing the HPA axis that you're actually actively trying to wake up by doing your taper. So it makes sense to
0: switch them over to a shorter acting um, steroid that wears off overnight. Oh, I love the idea of what we're trying to do with the taper is to wake up the adrenals that went out on vacation, right? Uh, Because the patient was taking steroids. I also love thinking about the benefits of switching to hydrocortisone. It kind of brings us back some space repetition to Pearl one where we learn that hydrocortisone is short-acting. So with hydrocortisone, the adrenals have time to kick in and aren't suppressed as consistently as they would with some long-acting steroids like methylpred or dexamethasone.
3: So if I were to summarize steroid tapers, if you have a patient that you're giving steroids for less than seven days without other recent steroid courses, feel empowered to just stop. If you're giving steroids for longer periods of time, you can rapidly weed down to about 20 milligrams of prednisone equivalent and then wean more slowly and consider switching to shorter acting and less potent glucocorticoids like hydrocortisone if possible.
0: Yeah. And then I think my biggest takeaway is to be more thoughtful about the patients who've had multiple short bursts of steroid exposures and cumulatively think about how we might be suppressing their HPA access and actually making them adrenally insufficient. And and maybe think a little bit more about those people who might need a court stim test, which uh, we will uh, release maybe a bonus interview next week with Dr. Sharif, who goes into that a bit more. So some of our discussants already brought up this in the previous Pearl, but what are some things that can come up when we're weaning steroids and really limit that?
3: Well, one is recurrence of a disease that you were using the steroids to treat, and the second is adrenal insufficiency. You know, I feel like we're always talking about preventing adrenal insufficiency, but I actually don't know when or what dose of a steroid wean that we really start to be concerned about
0: this. Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe the best way to answer this question is to help us understand what is the normal replacement dose, or in other words, what is the physiologic cortisol amount that our body makes?
2: We first look at what studies looked at, you know, what is the physiologic cortisol production in a 24-hour time span for patients. And the studies that we have are, you know, there's a small number, small n, maybe a few dozen patients, and they're all healthy volunteers. And the average daily cortisol production, if you take the mean, is seven milligrams per meter squared of body surface area.
0: So it's not a one-size-fits-all. It really depends on your patient's body surface area.
2: Well, if you kind of lump all the the studies together, the range is about five to nine. So the, the, the mean might be seven, the range might be five to nine milligrams per meter squared. So that's kind of how we get to ultimately, well, how much physiologic dose for an average human maybe 10 to 15 milligrams.
0: So in this case, 10 to 15 milligrams of cortisol is a 24-hour physiologic amount that our bodies usually produce. And we can think of that roughly as equivalent to 10 to 15 milligrams of hydrocortisone or for prednisone, 2.5 to 3.5 milligrams of prednisone daily.
3: Well, then we can combine that physiologic dose of steroids and then how long a patient has been on a steroid and then understand who is at higher risk for adrenal insufficiency.
2: In terms of duration, if someone's on a, a dose of steroid for less than two weeks, they would be at a low risk of developing adrenal insufficiency, probably at any dose. But then when we get to someone who's been on a, a, you know, a dose of prednisone equivalent for, of more than five milligrams, and we're getting to somebody who's taking it for more than two weeks, well, then they might be at a moderate risk of developing it. And then if it's more than four weeks, well, then, then they're going into the higher risk.
0: And we will link these thresholds for adrenal insufficiency in the show notes and the infographic.
3: Yeah, definitely a good reference to have. You know, Shreya, the other thing in addition to adrenal insufficiency that we worry about with weaning is steroid withdrawal syndrome. Ah, now it yeah. comes up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We mentioned it briefly in Pro 4, but it's a major reason why we really start to slow down the steroid taper at or around 20 milligrams of prednisone.
1: The steroid withdrawal symptoms are actually the more common and the more limiting factor. Uh, anywhere from about 10 to 80% of people who have been on prolonged steroids have some sort of withdrawal symptoms. So, this is a very poorly defined uh, entity. It gets called the steroid withdrawal symptom. It gets called, quote unquote, pseudo rheumatism. Steroid dependency has been used, that term. And it's basically a complex of symptoms that's not whatever you started the steroids for. So it's not the underlying condition, and it's not adrenally insufficient that make people feel bad when you taper their steroids. And the most commonly described phenotype is fatigue, general malaise, which can include things like dizziness, it can include nausea, it can include abdominal pain, myalgias, often a psychiatric component, depression or anxiety.
3: Our experts and even reviewers had a variety of metaphors to explain steroid withdrawal syndrome, all of which I thoroughly enjoyed, but my personal favorites were hitting the brakes on a car going 100 miles an hour (laughs) and getting sick when you go on vacation after you leave work and your
0: cortisol levels drop all of a sudden. Oh man, I didn't think about that. But yeah, that does happen, right? Your cortisol levels are all revved up trying to finish everything before vacation and then you like suddenly plummet. But no, I, I, as much as I love that, I think the other really important thing to highlight was really how to communicate this wean uh, to our patients and really help them through this with what to expect. So the car screeches and that's how patients feel on the inside when you try to do that.
4: So we have to be a little mindful and you need to educate your patients that they're not going to feel great, especially for the first couple of days after each step down. These are not days where they want to go for a marathon. These are days that they really want to take it easy. When I say take it easy, these are days you really want to pick up a book that you wanted to finish for a long time, or you want to sit and watch your favorite Netflix series. That's what you want to educate your patients about. And these are things you'll learn along the way when you take care of many patients with adrenal insufficiency and do enough steroid tapers that you understand the nuances of what patients go through, and that helps you guide other patients on what to expect.
3: Another thing that might prevent weaning steroids is that patients can be hesitant about going off steroids that have worked for them before in the past and then starting something new or more targeted, which can happen in the rheumatology world.
1: I'd say the most common conversation I have is like we discussed, you know, people are people are on steroids for some autoimmune problem and they're resistant to tapering the steroids in favor of a more targeted treatment. They're understandably reluctant and they're going from a drug that they feel is safe, that they're comfortable with, that they've often been on for a long period of time, that their doctors are very comfortable giving them, that they haven't known themselves to have any side effects from, to a drug that's you know, some sort of biological molecule made in a lab. I often find myself trying to think of ways to convey, you know, this other treatment is actually much more targeted and much less generally destructive <laughs> and steroids, even though steroids work. So what I always tell my patients who are very scared of going off steroids and going on, you know, biologic drugs that are much more targeted is steroids are like a bull in a China shop. They just go in there and they just, you know, break all your immune system, right? Everything. They they freeze your neutrophils, right? They suppress your lymphocytes. They, they prevent diaptesis. They're just, they're in there creating havoc.
0: Oh, wow. Can I just emphasize how much I love metaphors again? (laughs) Oh, yes. These are so good. I will definitely be stealing some of them. And maybe if I could try to summarize the biggest thing I'm taking away in kind of weaning or stopping steroids is being mindful of the recurrence of disease that might come up or steroid withdrawal symptoms, which honestly, it feels like a lot like symptoms we see with adrenal insufficiency, fatigue, nausea, depression, GI symptoms, you name it. And we can especially be mindful of people who are gonna be at higher risk for adrenal insufficiency, especially if they are on steroids for more than two weeks. The risk grows to moderate risk if they've been on more than five milligrams for four weeks and then high risk if they've been on steroids for more than a month.
3: And this is where you really wanna counsel and partner with your patients to let them know what to expect during this process and that we'll try to go as slowly as possible and work with them to get them off steroids.
0: Yeah. And with that, hashtag steroid stewardship. <laughs> and that is a wrap for our episode. If you found this episode helpful, please share this with your team, your colleagues. Give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us.
3: This episode was also made as a part of the digital education track at BIDMC. Thank you so much to all the educators and mentors. Thank you to our peer reviewers, Dr. Nick Mark and Dr. Katie Weisham. Thank you to Doc Shpatia for the audio editing and Dr. Sam Woodworth
0: for the accompaniment. graphics. And as always, we love hearing feedback. So email us at hello at coriampodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Thank you. Take care.